The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. The Brandon Peters Show and the summer of 82 at 40. A weekend by weekend look at the movies released during the summer of that year. As always, along for this journey from Forbes, it's the one, the only, the guy who's been here every week for this, Scott Mendelson. Always a pleasure. Glad to be back. All right. Uh, this week, uh, Scott and I will be taking a look at June 25th through the 27th. Uh, this is a big week, Scott. This is um, not for in the t- at the time this week happened. N- no, but spoiler alert: he's still number one. Yeah, looking back at it though, it's a geek culture. This is like a whoa that happened type weekend. Um, and it's yeah, it's a geek friendly weekend, but it is a notable failure of a weekend on many levels, and we will get into all of that this week but first let's take a look at the news it's the news of the moment what will be clear when the ratings come out is whether or not these changes have been effective mary hart for entertainment tonight on june 21st of this week scott john hinckley was found not guilty of his 1981 attempted assassination of president ronald reagan by reason of insanity that was his, uh, is it really insane to love Jodie Foster? Yeah. Sorry. Is <laughs> oh, Jodie. Uh, but there, there was a, you know, I actually, he was a character. Did, I don't know if it was an experimental thing, but my, was it my freshman year at college? I went to IPFW in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but it's now... PFW, because they got rid of the I, uh, IU, um, which was a, a musical called Assassins. Oh, yeah. Did you ever see that one? And I think Hinkley- it's, is it Sondheim? Oh, is it? I, mean, uh, I, I, it's what, I could be mistaken. It's fantastic. I yeah, like yeah, it. It's really it's... darkly funny. Yeah. Got some good songs. Hinkley's one of the characters in it. Yeah. Um, but I always remember that. He's like the 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 gateway character, right? I He might if be. I recall, it's been a yeah. while. It's crazy, but uh, yeah, but this is that guy, yeah, and he had yeah, had a musical made after him. <laughs> but I, I, I will say, yeah, like I've always wanted to see Assassins again because I saw it the first time I saw a college production of it, and I was like, this is pretty incredible, incredible idea. I know we're not supposed to glamorize or idolize, you know, uh, assassins, murders, and stuff, but taking it in this dark way and looking at the way pop culture views them because that's what this is that thing's about pretty interesting so um i don't think anybody would dare make it today but otherwise we haven't gotten a movie version right it's true it's true on june 22nd manhattan institute's bus only lanes big deal for buses here 
Yeah. Sucks if you're a bicycle. Yep. Sorry, bikes. Uh, June 22nd, Susan Lee Hammett is crowned the 18th, or she's 18 from Mississippi, crowned the 25th America's Junior Miss. That uh, I don't know if it's Miss America Junior or something, but uh, on June 23rd, Cle- Cleavage opened and closed at the Playhouse Theater in New York City. There was a story behind that. I don't know. I just thought it was funny, and I left it in. June 23rd, 117 degree Fahrenheit, the all-time low at the South Pole, hit that day. Still a problem. Still not doing much about it. Uh, on June 23rd, Hemi of Australia weighs in at the domestic cat record of 20.7 kilograms. That's 45 pounds for us Yankees. Oh, that's a fat cat. That is a fat cat. That that's is almost a, as fat as my cats, but not quite. Coming in 28th place, Garfield. That's <laughs> Garfield's not a real cat. No. He's not. Oh, oh uh, June 23rd, Mary Hart joins Entertainment Tonight. She's a staple for, uh, if you were in our era of watching Entertainment Tonight, that's a staple. John Tesh, Mary Hart. That's how we got the news. That's how we got... um, We didn't get stories that were like, this movie sucks and we'll tell you why. No. This obvious plot twist explained. Yes. Ending of movie explained. I'm just writing it now because even though, yeah, like, ending of Forrest Gump explained. No, we didn't get that Filmmakers respond to fans' response to filmmakers' response to fans' response. Read all about it. I finally decided to check out old movie. Did you know this? <laughs> did you know old movie wasn't thinking with modern sensibilities? I did not, but now I'm never going to watch it. Don't watch it ever. Yeah. <laughs> it's very sad that we look on entertainment tonight with fond nostalgia goggles compared to what we have. It's now. weird. I mean, because it wasn't exactly hard journalism in its day. No, it it was the hard copy of entertainment, the entertainment world, but it gave us first looks at trailers on yes. TV. So I, I would, would often watch with a VHS tape on hand. Yep. We did uh, record just in case. Some behind the scenes interviews and such. Uh they, I oddly enough it was it's probably a Weinstein's giving a money thing, but I remember the funniest thing was Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers was a big deal to entertain. Like they constantly had set reports from it, interviews with Donald Pleasance, like probably because he also died during the making of that movie. But I remember like it was like really like getting the hype up. I was like, I really? assume the interviews were before he died. Yes, they, yes, they <laughs> sorry. Casket was closed. Um <laughs> but <sighs> they, yeah, but it was really interesting. I remember that at the time. I would it would be on during dinner time. So we would have it uh, we had a TV in our kitchen dining room area. We would pop it on entertainment. My parents must have enjoyed watching entertainment tonight, but that was always on. So it was like a staple uh to watch back then and see the interviews and interesting mm. things about movies. And it make you interested about like all kinds of movies. Like today we get such biased and extreme to this area or this area or I don't want to know anything other than this thing. It didn't really it cultured you through movie stars and different types of movies be being made and coming out. So it was uh made like an adult movie I'm in like, well, hmm, maybe I see that. Or oh, but this type of person's looking forward to this and maybe I should check it out too. It's just felt like the variety was there where we 
don't have that at all anymore. We do some writers and things, but not not if the you way. Can afford to. Not saying it was better in the old days or anything like that. I'm just saying it, it was just interesting for the person who was the the film junkie before anything else. It was everything there. Nothing too in depth though, but it got you interested or knowing about all kinds of projects rather than just superhero movie trivia every week. Uh, and when I was growing up, if I didn't read about it first in the Monday morning edition of USA Today, I'd get the weekend box office, at least the top five. And how oh, yeah. they made on Monday night on Entertainment Tonight. And that was... You get Nielsen ratings time. too, yeah. Yeah, that would also be my first look at that weekend's movies. Mm-hmm. And then there'd be a top 10 in the night, that, issue, that week's issue of Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a weird progression in terms of how box office numbers were distributed, especially to you know general readers that weren't in the know. You know, Monday morning on USA Today, Monday night on Entertainment Tonight, and then eventually Sunday night on Headline News. Yeah, um, and they give you like the you know the number one movie and maybe two or three others. Heck, your um, local news so did the box office report even sometimes. Yes, absolutely, yeah. especially if there was actually news of note. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, obviously when the internet came along, you know, it was eventually in the late 90s, there was a site called showbizdata.com that had daily numbers. And that was mm-hmm. the first time, you know, I was able to get the daily numbers or both in terms of, hey, I know, you know, those are interesting and, you know, weekend multipliers because I, you know, if I didn't know what a movie made on Friday. I certainly didn't know how to, you know, do those, those numbers in terms of what it made, you know, over the weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, unless I film like broke a record like Jurassic Park or Batman Forever or whatever, right? I generally didn't get the Friday numbers anywhere. So, uh, yeah, uh, Entertainment Tonight, <laughs> waxing nostalgia on something we probably aren't that weren't that huge yeah. on. It was just part of our lives. That was it. Um, June twenty fourth, uh, the Supreme Court rules the president cannot be sued for actions in office. Hmm. Uh, June 25th, porn star John Holmes acquitted on murder charges, which you can see in the movie Wonderland, starring Val Kilmer as John Holmes. Correct. <laughs> uh, on June 26th, Carlos Lopez runs European record 10 kilometers at 27.34.39. And lastly, June 27th, the fourth NASA space shuttle mission, Columbia 4, uh, launches. Uh, <clears throat> notable deaths this week were Andrei Tchaikovsky. And Sandy Powell, uh, birthdays uh, this week. Prince William, Duke of Cambridge, was born this week in 1982. Uh, Jesse Smollett, you know him? The guy who uh, got beaten, yeah. but he didn't, and then he was born this week. And then Jarrett Stahl, the hockey player, born this week as well. So that was the news of the moment in uh, this week of 1982. <laughs> We'll move on to our first film, which 
doesn't make a dent in the box office report down the road, but it's notable. It came out this week. It's Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, this is directed by Terry Hughes for the concert footage. Ian McNaughton did the film stuff. It's written by Graham Chapman, John Cleese, and Terry Gilliam, starring John Cleese, Michael Palin, Eric Idle, Graham Chapman, Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones, Neil Inez, and Carol Cleveland. The wonderful Carol Cleveland, who is like the fifth Beatle for the Monty Python. Uh, it's about it features the Monty Python troupe perform a combination of classic sketches and new material at the Hollywood Bowl, filmed over a five different shows at the Hollywood Bowl and uh, culminated together for this concert film, which concert films, that was a thing, which we talked about. We just missed having in the top 10 when we started. This was the Richard Pryor one, right? Yes. Um, but these were like Eddie Murphy Raw, like all these, like you could go see concert films not being a fathom event back then. It was actually, hey, this has got to make a run in the theater. And a lot of them did very well. Yeah, I mean, even as recently as 2000, I remember the summer, I think it was summer 2000, Spike Lee directed The Kings of Comedy, oh, which yep, was a yep. special uh, highlighting for, I think four, maybe more, it's been a while, uh, black stand-up comedians. Yep. And it was a big hit. Uh, it, uh, I remember Kevin Hart's concert movies in like 2013 mm-hmm. started breaking out. You know, that's when he sort of popped up on the radar for most people. He had a stand-up film called, I think... Uh, Listen to my pain. I should look this up. I apologize. I think on my pain. It's been like I'm gonna open over July Fourth weekend, 2013. Actually, did a pretty decent first screen average. Well, uh, the Kings of Comedy mentioned introduced many people like Cedric the Entertainer and Bernie Mac. I think D.L. Hughley was in that, and Steve Harvey, which everybody knew Steve Harvey at the time. He was the celeb of the bunch. He was the celeb of the bunch. Hughley was kind of like I think Hughley had a, a show at the time too. But Cedric the Entertainer, Bernie Mac relatively unknown to i guess probably general or white people at the time and uh but like steve harvey had a really well-liked show um on tgif at the time i believe and there's kings of comedy and that was that was actually was it a pretty big hit or solid yes yeah yeah we did 11 million opening weekend Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's the kind of thing up until recently you wouldn't be in theaters now they're just all on netflix you know i get that Mm mm-hmm as for this, I mean, it's very funny, but yeah. as someone that isn't that well-versed in the Monty Python lexicon, mm-hmm. this seemed to be all of their greatest hits. It is a great, it's like a greatest, it's concert tour, yeah. like, and it plays like a con- like a rock concert. They like start a sketch and the crowd goes nuts. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I know this one. Say the punchline like you do on the show. <laughs> so Monty Python was really, it was really <laughs> weird. Like this is probably a chance to try to make some more money off this concert. And this is like a greatest hits and they changed some things up. Like, of course, like Terry Jones of the one sketch says his wife's from Glendale, like California and stuff like, Oh, I know that. I know that play, you know, just to bring in the audience from there. I am also from there. Uh, but they have in their films, that's Python proper. Not a lot of the side projects that wouldn't include all of them later down the road. This, and they have one called, and now for something completely different that they did, which it's greatest hit stuff. It's stuff from their show again. So they've done it like twice already have done this. I don't remember when, and then, and now for something completely different came out, but you know, catch it reruns of flying circus or buying it on a physical media form. Wasn't an option 
then. So I remember it was a big deal when they put out, I don't know what company it was. They put out like a giant, massive box set. I have the it. entire flying circus mm-hmm. show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, something like this, I imagine it's, it's not that different than when your kids drag you to see Yo Gabba Gabba live on stage. Right. And it's the same damn songs you can watch for free on television. Right. This, this is a, at the time coming out. This is good stuff. Looking back, it's like, I don't need this anymore. Like, there's yeah. nothing here that isn't done as well or better in other places. I mean, that. that They've got the Lumberjack song here. Uh, it's sung by somebody else. Um, they've got the nudge, nudge, wick, wick. Huh? Yeah, that guy. I, I was like that guy. And the argument sketch, which kills yeah. every time. I always love that one. Silly walks. There, it's it's all it's. If you know Python, you it's know that. There. If you if you want a taste of what Python, well, you can watch Flying Circus on Netflix now. <laughs> like yeah. you can. It, it's hard. To, like I appreciate this film, but it's like yeah, this is this has a this depreciated like really bad and it's not the python's fault like it's not it's just this thing that's like well we keep this but we don't have this you know it's it's weird well it's i imagine in 1982 most people didn't have a vcr or a lot of people didn't have a vcr you know so the idea of you know the same thing you know you whether you saw the shows in their original form or Mm -hmm. you go to see something like this and want you know Again, they've seen Capital Steps on stage back in the day. Yeah, you, know, you could buy their the cassettes, or you could see them live in concert. Yeah, and you know, like a stand-up comic that goes, you know, does a tour and does all the same material for that particular tour. You get new stuff on the next one. Yeah, but still, it's an interesting curiosity if you're so inclined. If you enjoy them doing their thing, this is great. This is yeah. I I do like this this yeah. movie f- cruised through for me, but I'm like, I know all these. Um, and I, I remembered that. It's not like it was a surprise to me this time. And yeah, it's just, yeah, it's it's fun to see new. There's the one where Idol goes out into the crowd doing stuff and it's a hoot. There's, yeah, there's some funny asbestos, stuff. Asbestos, asbestos And it's, it's on film, but one of my favorite sketches, which is really dumb, is the uh, philosopher soccer game thing. Oh, yeah. I don't know why that's so funny, but Eureka! He's got it. He's got it. I don't I don't know why, but that one's always so my favorite Python sketch is not done here though. It's all good. It's all good. So um this is funny and supposed to be funny and overall good. Overall good. If you want a quick hit of Python, you don't feel like going through the whole thing. Here you go. Um a movie that wasn't supposed to be funny, some people find funny, I didn't think was funny. Uh is our next film Megaforce. From the director who brought you Smokey and the Bandit, Hooper, and Cannonball Run, comes the ultimate spectacle. Megaforce, an elite compact fighting unit armed with the most sophisticated weapon science can devise. Theirs is the greatest challenge any force has ever faced. Megaforce, rated PG, now playing at a selected theater near you. Directed by... Hal Needham, between doing Cannonball Run and Stroker Ace, written by Bob Cackler, James Whitaker, and Albert S. Ruddy, who also wrote for Hogan's Heroes, The Longest Yard, Walker, Texas Ranger, and he also produced The Godfather, uh, Cannonball Run, Longest Yard, and recently produced Cry Macho. And stars Barry Bostwick, Michael Beck, Persis Kambata, and Henry Silva. It's the story about a rapid deployment defense unit that is called into action whenever freedom is threatened. I'll let you start with Megaforce, Scott. 
Not a good film. Um, apparently, an, I mean, an infamous disaster, even in its day. Mm-hmm. It was, for what it's worth, that it was up for several Razzies. I know the Razzies are a terribly human, respected institution, but nonetheless. Um, Barry Boswick's last feature film until we get it Bernie's tube, so like 12 years later. Wow. Um, and it... It's, you know, it's no secret that the film was the loose inspiration for the uh, Trey Stone and... Uh, Matt Stone and Trey uh, Parker. Yeah, I always get those two confused. Thank you. Uh, they're a uh, uh, Team America World Police picture. Mm-hmm. You know, this is basically that. It's sort of the zero hour to their airplane. Except yeah, yep. in that case, zero hour at least you know, delivers the goods. This has no <laughs> goods. Yeah. You know, it's an action film with almost no violence and very little action by default. And there's lots of almost action. Most of the action feels like stock footage. Yeah. Like it doesn't even feel like second unit. (laughs) It feels like stock footage. Honestly, the only genuinely interesting thing about it, a features a a young, a love interest who's of Indian descent back before that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a scene between him and her where Barry Boston is trying to seduce her. And, the silhouette that he intentionally makes in this scene is made to look like his penis is sticking out. Yes. And yeah. I did not know this, but I looked up the trivia and it was intentional to sort of as an F you to the director. Oh, okay. So that's Bos- the highlight. Boswick and Needham didn't get along. Apparently, and I don't want to spread gossip, it's on IMDb, so it's not my fault. Apparently, Bostrick was involved in a pyramid scheme that the director had brought him into, and it wasn't going well for him. So as revenge, he basically filmed an intimate scene where with a shadow penis. From a guy who's in Rocky Horror Picture Show, I believe this. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. I actually, so I met Barry Bostwick. I did a, I did a convention with him. Uh few years back and uh spoke with him for a bit like he was for some reason found me fascinating or whatever but he is so he probably has come to the realization that it became a cult movie this became a cult classic kind of movie people like or whatever and i had my show called cinema cavalcade and he wanted like he he was desperate i was running a podcast stage and at that show I there like nobody like people hadn't signed up so they gave it to me to do something with it so I just did interviews on the stage all weekend and there's a couple shows that were able to go um podcast record live but um he was all about like well you're the guy on the stage he's like what what can I do to get up there I'm like you can come but you have panels you have to do those like first like I can't take you from those and stuff like that and he's like oh well you he's like what do you talk about in your your show or whatever and I was like I was like, I told him, and he's like, he's like, yeah, you hear a megaforce? I'm like, I, I know of megaforce, Barry. I, <laughs> I, he's like, we could, we could talk about that. We could do, we, you know. I was like, that's unusual. I was like, I don't, I, you know. And he's like, what, what ones do you recommend? So I gave him like a, a five, a list of five movies like he should watch or whatever. So I told Barry Boswick to watch Dangerous Men, uh, which is better than megaforce. He'll find out, even though it's like costs like five cents to make uh but he wanted to talk mega for it he's like we gotta make plans or whatever you know we gotta do something i was like eh. <laughs> and i always remember like uh he's as he was leaving the convention on the sunday show uh he was walking with his suitcase and he walks by the stage he's like brandon brandon i was like well he's like we're gonna do the thing we're gonna do the. i'm gonna watch 
dangerous men and we are going to do the thing and we're going to talk about mega force too and i was like all right barry i haven't talked to him since uh, <laughs> and i don't think he'd want me to talk to him about mega force i don't the film think that would. cost basically the same amount as raiders yeah. of the lost ark yeah with a oh, lot yeah. less production value yeah th- th- and it's how Needham. it yeah. looks boring like he's yeah. not a bad director especially this is his wheelhouse the action but he like did he pick the most desert of desert that there's nothing there to film like he's into motorcycles for this and it just nothing looks cool or feels actiony it's just it's really weird like it threatens to be one of those Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins in the next movie kind of movies. Bingo, yeah. But there, I'll be honest, there is enough stuff in the second half where you get to see the thing you came to see yeah. as bad as it is. Well, there's only one interesting not, looking scene. It's yeah. the one you described with his the penis it's, shadows, yeah. but when she's <laughs> when she's training, it's staged really cool with shadows and yeah. light and stuff, and it looks really cool, but nothing else in this film yeah. looks that it's neat. Like, you've passed all the tests and you're qualified, but you're not coming with us anyway. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just wasted you and the audience's time on all this. It's, it's okay. I'm just glad I got this far. Yeah. It was our second Henry oh. Silva movie of the summer, too. He's a, a get a baddie. Uh, in this, I, I just it, it, he didn't the, play very many heroes. <laughs> no, uh, the, the narrative here is really weird because I feel like in ninety nine percent of movies, Michael Beck's the main character. We follow him. That's the love interest with the girl. But in this one, it's Bostwick who feels like he'd be like a second or third lead in any other movie, and we're following the deranged, weird head guy, like. It doesn't... Mistake that infinite would repeat. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I just—it's it, weird. Like, it, it doesn't feel like I'm like, I, I the way this movie starts, it, it feels like maybe in the script before it went that way, and then Boswick came in, and Boswick's like, "No, I want to play this guy," and so they have to like force it to be him. It's—I don't know. I mean, it, it, and I couldn't tell if it wanted to be like a deeply nationalistic, jingoistic you know, kind of movie for the, you know, Cold War or whatever, but it's certainly not as, it's not a Chuck Norris picture. Well, it's not, you know, Invasion USA. Michael Beck wears a Confederate flag on a Minor detail, yes. But at the time, and I'm not defending it at all, I'm just trying to ponder where the choice would be made. At this time, there's the Dukes of Hazzard, Oh and yeah, it wasn't back then. It wasn't that sacrilegious. Thing, that that you know. thing was just like ignorantly used as a sign of like badass country rebellion yes. without thinking of any further context, and just fuck it. It was and not. I'm not saying that using that symbol. I've never stood for that symbol. That is. Personally, yeah, like, I'm from Ohio. We were in the north, dude. Yeah, we we were in the north, but yeah, it's just it, that symbol's always made me feel. Uneasy. I'm glad, like, there is things that come to light that have made articulated thoughts of mine that I've always had that I didn't know how to quite say, and that's great uh, about it. But like, yeah, that's that's there, and it was probably just a well, throw that on there. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, everyone's talking about the 10th anniversary of John Carter, a film that flopped for a whole multitude of reasons. Right. One of which maybe don't make the hero a Confederate soldier. 
Oh. In the year 2012? I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Well, I, I, I revisited. You know, this isn't a 70s Clint Eastwood Western year. Exactly. Yeah. I, I revisited Outlaw Josie Wells during uh, pandemic lockdown. I was like, that's an interesting. But I'm like, in the context of the story, think about it. Like, yeah. put it in the story. Okay. That's, it's not, that, that's, it makes sense why he would join. And it's trying to show, uh, it's, it's not trying to make some big statement. It's just, it's it's an interesting piece of story. Like I don't think Outlaw Josie Wales or Eastwood is out to be that way, considering he's given many black filmmakers and such a yeah. career and helped boost things in life, um, despite him speaking to an empty chair, like we talked about before. But he has... His actions uh, have shown... is complicated. His actions in life have shown he doesn't isn't that yeah. way at all and has done more than many people who just yap about it. Um, but yeah... I, I I tried to get through Mega. I watched Mega Force once. Bored. I was like, I need to watch this. Like, try watching this. Like, again. I just I, I'm not in this. But I love cult movies. I love goofy things. I like, the, and this feels like it should be right there. I don't know. Like, this is bad Star Wars exploitation. Like, this is. I mean, unfortunately, I don't think it's even that. I was kind of going into this. And to be fair, I was sort of looking at the box art from a distance. I was thinking it kind of looked like something like, you know, Space Hunter in the Forbidden Zone or whatever. Right. Which is Star Wars exploitation. Star Wars Mad Max. Yeah. Yeah. It was after a while that I realized, you know, about 10 minutes, it was like, this is set on Earth. This is, is this going to turn into Flash Gordon at some point? Right. And then about 20 minutes, I'm like, no, this is, this is. This is a you know a real world action film with no action. It's that case of the eighties where the the movie poster or VHS box art does not tell the tale of what this movie actually is. And for a studio film like this, that's unusual. And because this isn't coming from Corman or anybody like yeah. that, where they would intentionally do that. This is Gordon who, oddly enough releases competition the same weekend. We'll get to that. <laughs> like, I don't know who uh, was thinking what, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Golden Harvest picture? Golden Harvest. It was Golden it was Harvest. But yeah, China's very yeah. slow attempt to break into Sorry. the Hollywood market, including, but, yeah, what are the other ones that we're going to talk about? We're going to talk about one of the other ones well, this week, yeah. The Protector in 85, which was supposed to be Jackie Chan's breakout, mm-hmm. which didn't quite happen until 11 years later, one of the Brocks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a nothing burger of a movie. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I get the Corbin comparison. The Corbin would have provided some entertainment value. Right, yep, yeah. I mean, this it, this movie doesn't have the fearless attitude to go in an odd place. It's got a competent director, which probably keeps it from that, which yeah. this isn't one of his competent films, and it's just... Action wise, it's boring. There should be some cheap effects or something standing out, but this is just like here's a shot of uh, motorcycles and explosions. I mean, in terms of the falling off the radar movies that we've watched this podcast, this may be the worst of the bunch. Yeah. Just because there wasn't anything even of curiosity value. Yeah. For me, excuse me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it wasn't, there's, there was no Phoebe Cates naked. There was no. <laughs> like, that's, sorry, that movie had that going for it. Uh, uh, but um, I mean, you know, Pacino and kids, uh, you know, we've uh, Sean Connery in a political satire. Yeah. Like, there's something. This is, yeah, yeah and this is probably has a higher profile than oh, any yeah. of those. Yeah, so. again, I mean, twenty million dollars in 1982 was not nothing. Yeah, you know, Raiders cost twenty two. Right. 
Um, you know, the Empire Strike Bass cost like 35 or 33. And this costs twice what ET cost, for God's sakes. Right. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Oh, man. But yeah. Mm. I think it cost, what? Yeah, it cost more than Star Trek 2. How does this cost more than Star Trek 2? I know they recycled all the sets for that one, but still. Yeah. They, the, the costumes aren't that great. Like, the light, like nothing. Like, I don't understand. There, it's all in the desert. That doesn't cost that much money, right? Trailers and stuff, maybe? I don't know. It's not on the screen. It's yeah, not on the on screen. The screen. Uh, but what was on the small screens, ha-ha, is the... I'm going to show you how the mystery of the Shady Lady was solved with the magic of the new Kodomatic 960 instant camera. No one ever saw the lady in good light. But I knew my Kodomatic camera would catch her. It magically makes any light just right and stops action. I said, not so fast, sweetheart. In an instant, the perfect proof, without a shadow of a doubt. You captured me. Capture the magic you've been missing with a new Kodomatic instant cameras and film. TV this week, our top 10 of the TV Nielsen ratings uh, for this week was number one was MASH on CBS. There it is. Took us... Took us uh, two months, but MASH topped the ratings. Uh, number two, Cagney and Lacey jumps in here uh, from CBS. Um, three, House Calls on CBS. Number four, Heart to Heart on ABC. Number five, Jefferson's on CBS. Number six, Too Close for Comfort on ABC. Number seven, Alice on CBS. Number eight and nine end up being 60 Minutes on CBS in 2020 on ABC. And Trapper John falls to number 10 on CBS. NBC does not appear in the top 10 at all. Not until number 16. It had three in total uh, in the 20 with Hill Street Blues falling to number 20. So something happened last week on Hill Street Blues when it was all the way up there that dropped the 20. <laughs> maybe it was a repeat. Or it's just maybe the other shows just have bigger viewership. Yeah. I don't know where we're going. It's weird to look at this because we're in the end of June. It shouldn't be new episodes of things, right? Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Because the May sweeps has been a thing yeah. for a long time. Maybe some of them get extra orders, like let's do some in the summer or something. But yeah, it, it seems really weird. I'm like that reruns would be dominating in this fashion. So I'm not sure of that. I have not researched that. It's hard enough to get these numbers uh, and accurate at that. So I kind of stopped there. But wasn't watching TV at the time, but I did have some television courses in high school which focused on the ratings, which is kind of a... I don't focus... I mean, I think the ratings is a joke to think about nowadays uh, with how TV landscape is, which is funny, which some still pay attention to it. But I was really into it for a while, um, reading the uh, TV ratings and stuff. It's a fun thing to do. But yeah, I don't know. But beyond what the what the seasonal things that have been in place for a long time are what, what was going on there. But now, I mean, even post-pandemic, we are in a real weird spot with network television and how things run. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 100,000 years ago, it came to our galaxy. Trapped in the wasteland of Antarctica, it could not escape. Now, it is free to become one of us. John Carpenter's The Thing, rated R. Let's be in a real weird spot. Antarctica is one as we oh. 
we talk about The Thing, directed by John Carpenter. After Escape from New York and right before Christine, but because of the failure of this movie, he took Christine because he was supposed to direct Firestarter and was let go after this movie's box office numbers. And if you watch Firestarter, it's one of the most uh, not directed by John Carpenter, John Carpenter movies you'll ever see. (laughs) But that one is also uh, Mark Lester, who is very much secretly a you know, Dollar General, he has some good films. I hate to call him that, but he is very much a uh, John Carpenter light type director if you look at his films. All right, and we talk about one of his films toward the very end of this run. Uh, Written by Bill Lancaster, who wrote The Bad News Bears, and John W. Campbell Jr., who has all the source material for this, starring Kurt Russell, Keith David, Wilford Brindley, and Richard Mazur. Uh, it's about a research team in Antarctica, which is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. Scott, the thing, you big fan? I think it's fine. Um, <laughs> I had seen it once in college, just because, mm-hmm. you know, when I was growing up, the film was not particularly well-respected among the nope. critical establishment. Um, you know, Eber didn't like it, and Russ Griggs, it wasn't that they hated it, it was just, okay, it's a movie, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I... I in retrospect, I'm genuinely surprised that there wasn't at least more huzzahs for the effects work, which were really impressive back then and frankly still hold up. Mm-hmm. I think um, that's part of why it has lived on because the yeah. horror, the horror fanatics, the one, the one thing I give the horror fanatic crowd is of all the genre fandoms, they tend to be the ones that l- learn movie making the most or quickest because they are like how they do that then they learn the they know most they they find out their rock stars become tom savini and people like that and they learn about that and the thing is one of those films that's like check out what they do to the human body in this dude like this is crazy and it yeah to this um, day holds up yeah i would say in terms of the you know infamous 80s gross out pictures i would put this up with maybe the fly and the blob from 1988 mm-hmm. yep just in terms and, of iconic, and yeah. Terms of trio of great remakes too. Yeah, yeah. The film is a solid, and then there were none type mystery thriller. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with a sci-fi hook involving, you know, it takes its time, and then you really don't get a lot of the hardcore gross-outs to the third act. Mm-hmm. Probably because they couldn't afford it. I mean, you know, this isn't this is nineteen eighty two. We really couldn't have nonstop action. Right. Um, certainly couldn't have like you know, nonstop effects of that nature. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's again Kurt Russell trying to break out of a Disney sandbox. Um, and other which than that, Escape you know, from New York had already done at this yeah. time. Yeah, was he doing much of that besides his John Carpenter pictures? I know he did he did this and Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China. Well, he was back to back to back. Well, he had br- he had busted out uh, and started breaking out of his childhood mode. He did the Elvis uh, miniseries oh, for that's right. for Car- that's where him and Carpenter started, uh, and then they liked where they went on to do Escape from New York, which was funny because I have a a great coffee table book of uh, John Carpenter's set photographer put out from she worked on I believe from Halloween through Christine, and Kurt Russell was on set of The Fog. Like a lot, oh. they were working on Escape from New York, which is pretty cool to see uh, him showing up there. But the thing, the yeah, these two working together, he launched them. They're a great tandem in the history of actor directors, and he likes. Here's the thing that I want to point about Russell, and it 
proves hard in this movie. The guy, I think there's the term knows the assignment or whatever. Of course, they're at that. Yeah. But he's got that thing that I know you like to attribute to Keanu Reeves of never being bigger than a role or a movie. Yes. He's got that. Ford, Keanu Reeves. And yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. Because this is totally an ensemble picture that's yeah. set up for him to be this big lead. And he never commands it, he never takes over. He's always with the other guys. And it makes this film a lot more fun. And it makes him a lot more vulnerable in a picture where you know he's the lead but you aren't sure if he can make it as far as the other character. Like, yeah, he's almost the anti-hero in large chunks of the picture. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and he would play that game again, slight spoiler, in The Hateful Eight. Yeah. Um, where he's absolutely presented as a co-lead with Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Spoiler, he does not make it to the end credits. Correct. Um, one thing, and I'm mean, ask you a question I don't know the mm-hmm. answer to, so apologies. I mean, when I think of early John Carpenter, I think of stuff like The Fog and Halloween, mm-hmm. films that aren't necessarily drowning in gore. Yeah. Was this an intentional attempt by him to say, I can do that too? Well, he or was start- it just him playing a different sandbox? It's a different sandbox. And he also, he started getting into that mold with when he produced Halloween 2. Uh, because a lot of the people that went into production on Halloween 2, when they originally made the film, they made it pretty gore free and he went back and he's like no you gotta like he wrote it to have more gore and then he went and reshot stuff and he directed the reshoots and inserts and added more gore to Halloween too so he was kind of that's where horror was and I think it was just Rob Bettine wanted to work with him and do creature stuff I don't think he looked at it as gore as more as he looked at it as like a creature feature type thing yeah. with a Lovecraftian twist to it and he also geeks out here and Neil Morricone does the score for it because he normally does his scores John Carpenter's a big Western fan. Um, and, you know, he, uh, of course, on Escape from New York had, uh, oh gosh, love the guy. What's his name? Lee Van Cleef. If you, if you look, and uh, Assault and Precinct 13 is lots of parts Night of the Living Dead, lots of parts Rio Bravo. So he's got his kind of Western thing here. And this could be, and John Carpenter has a theme of people being holed up in a place and attacked from an outside source. That yeah. is that is a running theme through all his movies. Uh, and there's the paranoia here. He claims this movie he found in the editing room. Like, that this movie, in speaking in a production vibes, I don't know if it's as drastic as it sounds with what he found, but he said he shot all, this whole thing. He stopped because he was losing himself. He went took a few days off, started editing, put it together, figured it out, went back and reshot a lot of stuff. And so he says he found the story in the editing room. So sometimes that can be little changes. Sometimes that can be big changes. And I always like, I always like the the fun of editing is seeing how much control you can, how you can drastically change things with edits and make it make sense. It's so much fun. Like people don't get editors credit. Like we give out best actor awards, but they're formed by the editor choosing the takes. Like, I think it was Javier Bardem who said he was accepting some award or another. It wasn't enough, the Oscar. Mm-hmm. But he basically said, thank you to the editor for choosing all the best takes. Yeah. No one ever takes, no one ever thanks the editor. Yeah. It's insane. Uh, and they work hard. And uh, But Carpenter said he found it in the editing room. And there he is. Here he goes. And this has been a film that has also hurt him like over the years. It really, his value to a studio went it plummeted with this movie. Like he, cause I was Starman. Starman comes. So he, 84 in 84. Yeah. So he starts building it back up, but 
the look at John Carpenter, John Carpenter we talk about today is not how he was talked about probably till the 2010s. No, I agree. And at least in the 2000s, and, know, people I went to college with said, oh, you know, he's great. It's not just Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's always been um, uh, of my, fa- like, I have my favorite directors. I always come back. Carpenter is there. He made my favorite film of all time, of course, and many of my favorite films of all time. He's always been there, up there with Hitchcock and uh, Kubrick for me. And this one was been a thorn aside. It's now considered, many will tell you, his best film. But if you go back to like the 90s and you're talking John Carpenter and the films to see of his, that has changed because people would have told you back then, well, you have Halloween and then you probably want to see Starman and you want to see Christine. Starman, Christine, probably don't get recommended that high now. Starman, his- even yeah. back then, was sort of his one prestige picture. Yeah. Like, you know, his shot at respectability. Yep. And it was um, well-reviewed. It got a, Jeff Bridges got an Oscar nomination. I'm yeah. sure if you lived in the time, there was potential buzz for other things regarding that movie. Like maybe, maybe Carpenter can get up for Best Director or something. That was his one thing. But I think... One thing I like about Carpenter and what Guillermo del Toro has been able to do beyond him is Carpenter just made the pictures he wanted to make and awards be damned. Del Toro, the mindset has changed and they'll nominate pictures like his. Yes. Things like that. Like he is just, he's, you're never going to see him make prestige. They're going to, the prestige is going to go at him rather than he'll just make his. No, I agree. And that's actually, you know, when people talk about, you know, conventional best picture winners, like really the shape of water, she fucks a fish. Yeah. <laughs> it's a sci-fi, you know, it's a sci-fi fantasy romance about a woman that has sex with a fish. Yeah. Not exactly green book here. Right. And, and to be fair, I mean, to my, unless I'm missing one other than in the mouth of madness, which wasn't super well received at the time, his nineties output wasn't exactly, uh, it's interesting, but it, it doesn't go. <laughs> yeah. Like he, yeah, he I tries mean, you know, Memoirs of the Invisible Man. Uh, but, uh, you know, he the remakes of the, the Village of the Damned. Village of the Damned. They're not, you know, if anything, even then it was like, hmm, how the mighty have fallen type situation. Right. And uh, yeah, he goes through there. And then after Ghosts of Mars, he's, he's, he does a couple of the Masters of Horror series because yes. he wasn't getting anything. And then he takes like, years, be the ward. He takes years off this award, and then he's like, you know what? And to his degree, he stopped, and it, why? Like, I don't have anything to say. Like, yeah. He's like, I'm not going to make a film to make a film. I want to have something to say. Oh, no, he seems to have been happily retired, more mm-hmm. or less. Yeah. I mean, he'll, you know, he'll participate in the new Halloween stuff just because he yeah. really wants to. Yeah, he does the scores. Oh. He's, he's fine. Yeah. And, yeah, he, he likes oh. to he likes to play video, play Xbox and uh, watch the Lakers and more power to him. Like the, so he wrote off into the sunset. And one thing, uh, and he's always, he got labeled as a grouch for many years, which I just, I don't think he was. And he's always like, I've seen, depends who talks to him. My friend, Justin Beam, who's been on the show before. Anytime Justin, you could tell when Justin is the guy interviewing him because Carpenter lights up a bit more. He's more open stuff. Uh, but also like he, he gave a great answer. There was a a Q and A at Prince of Darkness, and someone, of course, asked him about digital or film, and or he's trying to get him to say like, you know, fuck digital, f- shoot on film, blah blah blah. And Carver goes, Carver's like, just make a good movie. And the guy's like, what? He's like, just if you have the equipment, use the equipment and stuff you have, and just 
go make a good movie. I made what I had because that's what I had. Like, just just make a good movie and no one cares. Just make a good movie and nobody cares. And I was like, that's a great answer. That's a great answer. You know, Soderbergh yeah. made some made a couple movies with an iPhone. Come on, <laughs> but they make they look more damn cinematic than a lot of what we get out of the yeah. studios these days. Yeah, but this this movie is I I think was uh, you know unfairly not unfairly, but I mean it's not what people are expect. It was a, a remake of a rather harmless black and white little film, and it's a remake but kind of a sequel in a way. Like, is it yeah takes place at the other camp? It's all dudes. In this place, so there's no female cast, but it's a diverse cast. Um, yeah. Age-wise, more than one black character. Once again, disputing the conventional wisdom, the black guy lives at the end, or does I mean, he? Because that ending well, is up in the air. And to yeah. Carpenter's credit, he's not yeah. going to tell us what it is. Yeah, I mean, you know more about horror than I do. Frankly, was the black guy dies first ever actually a thing, or is that just a meme that got started by? It got started in like the nineties. Because um, I mean, I, again, I grew up in the you know watching films like Event Horizon and House on Haunted mm-hmm. Hill and DPC, and where it was like usually it was an ensemble picture, and there was usually a white lady and a black guy that made it to the end. Mm-hmm. I think it was mainly brought up because in the eighties slasher movies that black people didn't make it, or they Fair. weren't even they weren't even in the cast, so. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's where I think it comes from is the, the eight or slasher boom. And I think that's what scream is talking about when they talk it. But then it became a meme like that. That comes out. It's like, no, come on. And LL Cool J wasn't the first to survive. A, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's like, it's like, I don't, this seems like it's been a running joke longer than it's been actually a thing. Yeah. I get like the whole Disney princess thing. It's like, you know, we've had, we had like, three or four traditional princess movies and then 30 years of she's not your normal Disney princess flicks. Yep. The jokes aren't funny when there's no ounce of truth to them. That's always yeah. been my thing. Like other people make these general, it's like, eh, but it's like, I was why like, does Wes Anderson cast a black person? Did you see his last movie, which starred Jeffrey Wright in the, as the lead character in the third story? I wouldn't say that. <laughs> or Tim Burton hates black people. Like, no, Folks, hey, he tried to give us a black robin and two. He face. tried to. He got asked to leave because he tried to give us a black robin <laughs> and black two face. Yeah. Like, come on, like. <laughs> and I think people misunderstood what he meant by something with like an aesthetic on his. Like, yeah, context. It was a dumb thing to say. It but, was, you know, and he'd probably tell you it was dumb too. But yeah, it was Dumbo. That's what he said. <laughs> but yeah, the the thing is great. Uh, I don't think Scott and I can go like say a bunch of things that haven't been said about this movie. It's been a, a huge topic of the internet era. Uh, being a popular watching film. it for the first time in a while, it might have been a situation where the original film, The Thing from Outer Space, was the loose inspiration for Alien. Mm-hmm. So when this film comes out three years after Alien, is it, it's, it sort of looks like a you know, an Antarctic knockoff of Alien. Right, yeah, where yeah. Where it's, you know, people being stalked by an alien creature with gruesome violence and gross shockouts. And honestly, you know, I assume people have seen this if they're listening to this podcast, but, you know, the scene where the guy's hands dip into the body cavity and get notched off. Gets me every That's time. as good of a jolt as the one from Jess Burster and Alien. Yeah. Gets me um, every time. It's, it's, it's hard it's, to time you know, it. Again, not you know this this podcast was recorded on the tenth anniversary of John Carter. That's why I keep bringing up John Carter. Yeah, that's a case where you know it's like 
you know, the thing might have been victimized by being seen as a knockoff of the things that knocked it, you know, ripped it off. Mm-hmm. By it, I mean the original thing from the 1950s. Um, anyway, I interrupted you. I apologize. No, no, you're fine. No, it's, it is, and but the thing is, too, like, the thing is, too, not, it's, it's a case of, I think, also the internet caught up to knowing that this was a good movie, but I don't know if the general general public turned or because they made another one and nobody went to see it. Granted, that one had some bad press and behind the scenes stuff that should never affect you going to a movie, but and thinking things, but it does. I still don't think that that really affects most general moviegoers. I just true. think that was you know it was an IP that no one really cared about. Yeah, like another sequel to a movie we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if you again, it's 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 perhaps mistaking online discourse for general audience mm-hmm. interest. But no, I, I think general audiences just don't care about the thing for better yeah. or worse, yeah. and that's fine, I guess. I do think it got a raw deal in terms of artistic and commercial, whatever, because it's a pretty decent picture. Yeah, but it was also during a time where I think that the conversation around a horror as a genre was very different. Yeah, we were getting to video nasties over in the UK. We we had uh, slasher movies all the time, all that stuff. Like, granted, though, funny enough, we've run into what one slasher movie so far. Granted, yeah. we winded down, but we had a one little scene slasher movie so far. Yeah, uh, uh, but you know, I, I think right now this was a point in time, critically, where it was sort of a badge of honor if you were a stuffy film critic who didn't like horror movies because they were. Yeah. Generator or moral or whatever. I mean, look, I love Cisco Neighbor as much as anyone else does, but this was an this embarrassing was a time soft for, them. Spot for them. Yes. Yeah, this is an embarrassing time. They are time not fallible. Yep. Um, to be fair, Ebert was a champion of Last House on the Left before it was popular. Mm-hmm. And um, Halloween. Uh, and Halloween. Yeah, I shouldn't. They were too part of the brush, but. But they're putting Betsy Palmer's number across their screen and their campaign for Silent Night. Yeah, like it's. Yeah. There's some embarrassing stuff here in the 80s. Now, here's Casey Kasem. Thank you, Charlie. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to America's Top 10. Let's get right to the action on Billboard's Pop Singles Chart and check out the 10 most popular hits in America this week. But not embarrassing is our Casey Kasem Top 40, Top 10 for this week. No change at the number one spot, though. Uh, but starting at number 10, the other woman from Ray Parker Jr. falls from number four to number 10. Entering the top 10, Love's Been a Little Bit Hard on Me by Juice Newton. And number eight, Let It Whip by the Daz Band. And number seven, staying at seven, uh, Crimson and Clover by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Moving up three spots, John Cougar with Hurt So Good. Come on, baby, make it hurt so good. Staying at five, always on my mind by Willie Nelson. Asia's heat of the moment moves up a couple spots to number four. Rosanna stays put at number two by Toto. The Human League can't quite move to number one with Don't You Want Me because Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder with Ebony and Ivory for seven weeks in a row is number one. And this is our week eight episode so it's for seven of the eight weeks except the only number one we have had that wasn't ebony and ivory was the theme from uh chariots of fire by vangelis 
which is not in the top 10 anymore here. But Vangelis also scored our next movie, Blade Runner. Los Angeles, 2019. There was an escape from the off-world colonies. They slaughtered... The assignment? Track down six manufactured humans. He's the best man for the job. But he may die trying to prove it. Harrison Ford is the Blade Runner. I'm doing. I'm just getting better at the segues every Holy week. Shit. Every week. Uh, <laughs> directed by Whit- Ridley Scott, written by Hampton Fancher, David Webb Peoples on the novel "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" by Philip K. Spoiler, Dick. They do not. They don't. Starring Harrison Ford, Rutger Hour, Sean Young, Edward James Olmos. M. Emmett Walsh, Daryl Hannah, William Sanderson, Brian James, James Hong, and Joanna Cassidy. The, uh, it's about a Blade Runner who must pursue and terminate four replicants who stole a ship in space and have returned to Earth to find their creator. Scott, for this version, for this, uh, for this episode, I watched the original theatrical cut of Blade Runner. I haven't watched it. I've watched it once or twice, but it, I never, I didn't see it until it came out on Blu-ray uh, back when I was living out there uh, with you. Uh, not together, but this uh, movie, I this is one we disagree on. We Scott and I don't feel the same way about Blade Runner. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. Scott could do without it. Um, well, I don't dislike it. It is just a solid it. picture. Um, I have, I've seen every cut of the movie. I have read the book do andrew droids dream of electric sheep i do like philip k dick novels even though there is a repetitious theme throughout them i i will say blade runner my history with it begins in high school when i had a class called mass media that was our like hey look tv and stuff for kids uh a class which Having my skill, prowess, and desires, I wound up editing everybody's shit all the time on VHS tapes because it was why I wanted to do it. I guess uh, I got. Well, I mean, I got pulled from the class to do that. Like he was like, "You're way more advanced than all these people. Let's have you doing some good stuff." Uh, first day, the professor or professor teacher, uh, Mister A, he was a mentor of sorts to me. Uh, showed some clips of scenes he loved from movies that stuck with stuck with him throughout. He edited this video together. Blade Runner. I'd never. I'd seen the poster. I never. Why well, I don't know why I never rented it before. Is Harrison Ford? He's holding the blaster. It's sci-fi. I love Star Wars and all that stuff. Never read it. So here's a scene from it, and it's the Rutger Hour Tears in the Rain scene. So he shows me that, and I'm like, well, that's really interesting. That movie has a cool look to it. I never saw it, so I went and rented it uh, after I got out of school, and I watched it, and I was like, I didn't know how I felt about the movie. It was really weird because I was appreciative of things in it i got the vibe but i thought it was going to be a more action-oriented movie considering he the the poster kind of suggests it it's harrison ford who'd been in star wars he'd been in uh, raiders of the lost ark and you know really scott did alien and he did these movies and it's not it's not at all And, and i just felt we're oddly indifferent to it so then that was the only time I saw it. In college, we had 
I worked at Circuit City and it was like Black Friday and they had Blade Runner for two bucks on DVD. So I'm like, let's give this thing another shot. I watched it. I enjoyed it more. I thought it was much more interesting. And every time, that's my story with Blade Runner. Every time I'd seen it, I liked it more and I got something new out of it. I got something, it meant something different to me. And all through my life, I've noticed different aspects of Blade Runner. And that's why I've loved it. When a movie can do that with me, that's why it becomes one of my favorites. Not just the rewatch value. It's like the personal value, the way it makes my mind think, the way I I enjoy it all. Like, that's why I take in. It goes beyond, this movie's beautifully shot. It has special effects that digital can't even touch for some reason. Like, it's amazing. Um, But... Yeah, that's why I love Blade Runner so much, a lot of the way. But, Scott, your thoughts on Blade Runner? No, I've always enjoyed the picture. I just, you know, even when I was a kid, I saw the theatrical cut um, on network televisions. There were a couple edits for content, but not mm-hmm. that much because it's not a particularly grotesque movie. Right. Um, I saw the first of 600 director's cuts uh, when it came out on uh, VHS in, like, nineteen ninety. Two, I guess, mm-hmm. ten year anniversary. Yep. Uh, it letterboxed, so that was nice, uh, and I liked it. And then I watched it again, the final, <laughs> final cut. Yes. Uh, about three and a half years ago, about a month before Blade Runner twenty forty million came out, mm-hmm. uh, and I always enjoy it. I think it's an absolute triumph of production design mm-hmm. and special effects and mood and atmosphere. It's a tone poem, and it's incredibly influential in terms of everything from. Batman, uh, the fifth element. Uh, Batman Begins. Batman. <laughs> Batman Begins. I mean, an entire... I don't want to give it credit for Japanese anime because that's going to get me in trouble, but mm-hmm. without knowing that much about pre-Akira Japanese anime, it certainly seems to be of a kind with an entire genre of cyberpunk sci-fi action adventure pictures. Mm-hmm. Um as far as being an action movie, not an action movie, I mean, I think for me, it had about as much as action as you would expect from something that wasn't necessarily Star Wars or First Blood at that time, where, you know, there's a few action sequences. We don't really get one until about an hour into the film yeah. when he confronts Joanna Cassidy to get a chance. Yes, yes. And it is, it's a restrained picture in almost every way. Mm-hmm. I know it's a minority. I don't mind the narration. I mean, yes, it's very, you know, I don't want to be here on Harrison Ford's part, but that kind of is in character, to be frank. And it, well, it kind of feels, I almost feel like he's so uninterested. Like, I almost felt like it's like a different character telling us at times. That's like, fair. And, and a lot of it is just there to be like, did did you catch that? I, yeah, you, yeah. You know, like, it's reiterating, which it can be helpful. It can be helpful. Yeah, like I, I do, and again, this isn't, anything I've given much, you know, thought to either way. But for me, the narration was, you know, okay, yeah. It's sort of the character in character giving his thoughts on the on-screen events, mm-hmm. which is what film noir, you know, that's that's, yeah. that's the genre. And yeah, I think obviously the reason why it's been so unpopular, why I was eventually removed is because, you know, it was test screening and production, you know, studio requirements, yada, yada, yada. Let me put it this way. If nobody had told me at a time that everybody hated it, I probably would have thought this is fine. Yeah. 
And I don't generally love voiceover animation uh, voiceover narration anyway. There's very few movies. It's not where I think it really rampant helps. through this. It is not no. rampant through this. It shows. It almost just. It's almost catch. You're like, oh, we're okay. Yeah. And yeah, the 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 vaguely happy endings of Little Gooey, and I think the film's better without it. Mm-hmm. But it also it's you know it's an epilogue. Yeah, and I guess for me. It's a situation where, in my opinion, critics got it right the first time, which is that most of them liked it, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a triumph of production design. I don't want to say style over substance. That's a bit harsh. There's obviously substance here, but it's obvious. It's very much a movie that, you know, is bedrocked upon its production values mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, it's a pretty run of the mill story with run of the mill archetypical genre specific characters with maybe with the exception of Rutger Hauer. Is, yeah, you know, he's a, fantastic you know, the whole, in this. You know, yeah. The robots that's more human than the humans around him type deal. And obviously his big, I think his big closing monologue goes a long way toward the movie's overall impact. But yeah, that's why it's there. Well, I, I like you know, the I always like the film. It's I, I, it gives you one that, yeah, it's good. I like it. Yeah, I, I mean, so, I, yeah, I, I'm in the lovely category. I, I do like, uh, th- yeah, it's about obviously what what does it mean to be human that's the big core thing and the robots in it there's good choices to show them bleeding to show them hurt to show them getting high emotions while none of the human characters do you never harrison ford doesn't bleed to the end there's always been the the mystery of is he a replicant himself is he and and, and you know the answer ends up being no because we have a sequel that says that but i i watching this time was interesting i'm like there's the chance that he's a replicant, like, because, you know, Rachel doesn't know she's a replicant. That's the thing. But perhaps he is, too. And because we, we don't meet him until after one of the best Blade Runners is de- taken out yeah. by. Uh, and who knows if he isn't, with his memories, placed into the situation to finish the job. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting. I know... Ford and Scott have disagreed about it, but it's an interesting thing to ponder. It gives you more to chew on. Um, and really, Scott, this is a interesting thing for him now looking back at his career. He has a real interest in this robot stuff and people confronting their maker slash god. Um, oh, yeah. He's basically more of the Alien franchise than that. Well, yeah, because Prome- Prometheus and Alien Covenant almost feel like thematic sequels to Blade Runner more than they do explorations in the world of Alien. Like I think of anything, the requirement that they be Alien pictures is somewhat to their detriment. Yeah. I, I, I'm not big on Prometheus, but I enjoy Alien Covenant for what yeah. it's, I, I think they're both fine. I, I, I was it. just in a better mood when I saw the latter. Yeah. There you go. Um, um, and Harrison Ford here, making this is a in-between the Star Wars and Indiana Jones sandwich. Like This is yeah. the one movie he has between... Uh, Raiders and uh, Temple of Doom and Jedi and Empire, like it's a it's a sandwich, and he's make him continuing to make a career of not being the first choice. Um, there was like nine names before his came up for this. Like Dustin Hoffman was the guy they wanted. That was the top dog, uh, and there's a lot of other names that come up. But Harrison Ford, this is perfect because. I know he's a unique presence in the history of film. Like, there's who's Harrison Ford, uh, who's he like, and I've always found, and I think that Coppola, Lucas, Spielberg—they all saw it, and they're all big fans. But he's the next generation Bogart. 
And this oh, yeah. is his most Bogart <laughs> role of any of these taken. Like he's got if if he doesn't look like Humphrey Bogart, but his demeanor is like Bogart's a unique presence. The only time he's been perfectly carried on through another actor is Harrison Ford. Like he's I would I would also say Bruce Willis during the good times. Yeah, yeah, I can, um, okay, yeah, yeah, during the when he cared. <laughs> when he cared. Yeah. In the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, up till he also up, did a lot of you know non actiony dramas and mm-hmm. comedies in the eighties and nineties. Well, up to and including anyway. Moonrise Kingdom. That's the last time he looked like he yeah. gave a shit. Death Wish of all things. I mean, you can yeah. argue whether the movie's any good, but he's he's alert. Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting movie that there's it is. conversations to had good about. Enough that I wish it were good. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting one too. But yeah. Um, um, there, Sean Young is so good in this movie that I, I don't know. I, I feel like with her career, it's like people are like, man, she's really good as that robot. And then it's like, oh, she is that robot. Or something happened there with a lot of her. She, she's had some flat performances. She's definitely. She works good, whoever the direct, depending on who the director is, too. But she's. This is a launching pad for her, I believe. It is. And she's terrific. Brian James is pretty good. He's a character actor. And Emmett Walsh is having a blast. Edward James almost. Like, this is a pretty big cast. Now, looking back, a lot of them weren't quite taking off, but it's it's fun. The world, it, I, it, the thing with Blade Runner is, I don't think any of us would want to like live there, but we'd want to visit and just see, like, oh, this is real, but it looks so cool. And it for so, how did this just works? is beyond me, but um, it's fascinating. It incorporates a lot of like Asian culture into it in the whatever happens in 2019. Things are extravagant, but not. It's it's this perfect balance. It's aged. It's that... Remember a couple of years ago, we were all afraid that, oh no, we're going to turn into Blade Runner in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. Promise? Now we got to wait till uh, 2049, right? <laughs> So that's where we have to wait to see what happens. I and um, yeah, Blade Runner would. It's a proper because I think Ridley Scott continually returned to it. Therefore, the interest and wanting more of it continue. There was books that were made to continue it. The movie Soldier is apparently a part of this by virtue of a line. Yeah, I think it was official. Was, did it start as a sequel? And then just no, I think there's else? an unofficial line that ties it to it. Um, yeah. But they've always... It's it's now like, uh, you know, it, it got a sequel that I think general consensus got way better than anyone expected it to be. And now there's been a cartoon show on Cartoon Network and there will be a streaming series for it, which might be a perfect home for continuing... Blade well, Runner Adventures. It's streaming price. where there's no such thing as a good or a bad idea. That's true. That's true. Because is it good? Is it bad? Did anyone watch it? Did everyone ignore it? Who cares? It's all a content widget. Mm-hmm. Nothing yeah. matters. <laughs> Nothing matters. But yeah, and um, li- like the thing, when it was revisited, the interest yeah. didn't match what the internet yeah, it was a classic case of online interest being mistaken for general audience awareness and anticipation. 
But I think yeah. the film did impressively bring over more general audience than you could have expected, but not um, enough to. Well, it's not on that budget. I mean, look, yeah. I mean, yeah. my issues with the film and we visit it one of these days. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad film. It just didn't do much for me. Right. And at, you know, a, a two and a half hour R-rated action light science fiction tone poem making $250 million worldwide would have been great if the movie in question hadn't cost 155. Right. I mean, Arrival made 200, which is a huge smash because it only cost 50. Yeah. Now, is it, you know, was there such a thing as a, you know, $75 million version of this movie? I don't know. Maybe not. Um, so there's a thing like with John Carter, or I keep bringing up that, sorry. Um, <laughs> whereas, like, you know, that film was commercial suicide at 250 and always was for a number of reasons. But, you know, I don't think, I don't know if the 75 million version of that actually exists. I think Denis Villeneuve has the talent to make it on the lower end of things, which, I mean, look, look at Dune and look at Black Widow. Dune costs less <laughs> oh, you're than Black right. Widow. Yeah. And again, if the studio says, here, take this money. You, know, you take it, yeah. You take it, of course. Right. Um, with that being said, I mean, you know, it's it's commercial fate is is... You know, only matters to people like me. But no, that that was a case like the 2011 remake or sequel or whatever the hell it was. The thing, mm-hmm. like, you know, like Doctor Sleep, which I like. Yeah, but that was another case that was sold as, "Hey, gang, we're getting another The Shining," and the general audience said, "What?" Well, in defense of Doctor Sleep, uh, and the Shining, that was a, a another book to adapt, like. That oh, wasn't yeah, out of thin air. Like Stephen King properties were, it had made. Yeah, hey, let's, I, mean, let's yeah I, I can understand why they rolled the dice on it, but it was right. always a coin toss at best. Yeah. And the marketing campaign, like especially like Blade Runner 2049, because I think, frankly, the filmmakers were a little absurd about what could and couldn't be spoiled and even the reviews. Right. I mean, we got, you know, polite but very stirred notes about not revealing that Ryan Gosling's Carol was a replicant, something that's revealed in the first five minutes of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, it's, and the marketing reflected that. Like, audiences had no idea what this movie was actually about. What they other needed, than yeah. It's another Blade Runner movie. Yeah, just sell it as a, a new movie. Like, yeah. yeah even and that's, if- to their credit, that's what they would do. Yeah. They did not, you know, and again, that film, whether it was, you know, did better than it would have done outside of COVID or not, it did do just well enough to not be a whiff. Yeah. I mean, again, in non-COVID times, 400 on the 165 is a coin toss as to whether or not that actually makes money. Yeah. But they are in a position where the sequel could do better. Best Picture nomination helps too. Yeah. It <laughs> it's, um, it's so crazy that Dune went from laughingstock joke uh, – I an icon for failure in franchise filmmaking to prestige best picture nominee. And, you know, to their credit, Warner Brothers sold the hell of it as something new. Yeah. Something that was rooted in these mar- you know, marquee characters. They did sell Timothy Shalomatists from the new Luke Skywalker, Harry mm-hmm. Potter, or whatever. They had the goods. And when Warner Brothers is on fire, nobody is better at selling unconventional franchise films into genuine blockbusters true you know magic mike american graffiti excuse me american sniper gravity uh crazy rich asians the meg 
you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They even have weird DC films to spin at you. So yeah. that's uh, it. You know, getting back, you mentioned oh, yeah. a ago, where they opened that to $123 million. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Yeah. But anyway, um, speaking of dollar, let's just roll on into the box office. There's uh, a whole commentary of me talking about Blade Runner on Out Now with Aaron and Abe, which you can check out so I get more deep thoughts of mine. I have always have different new thoughts and stuff about Blade Runner every time I watched it, including this time, but maybe we'll talk about it on an episode here sometime because uh, I really I cherish it. It's in my tops of all time. Usually falls in the five because of my fascination with revisiting the film, its themes, and more. I'd say another another film that I point out that I revisit and stuff is Vert- Vertigo. I get something new out of that every oh, time. Oh, yeah. I mean, they may be, whether it's Hitchcock's best film, it may be his definitive picture. Mm-hmm. Not just because it's very autobiographical of that, too. Not literally, metaphorically autobiographical. He right. spews his neurosis on the screen. I mean, that was one of his failures, too. Back yeah, when came that out. was That's another so one. crazy. That, yeah. Although, weirdly enough, just by happenstance, when I first started getting into Hitchcock, when I was at like 11, I rented Psycho because that's mm-hmm. the one you start with. Yep. And then the next three I rented were The Birds, Rear Window, and Vertigo. Mm-hmm. That for some reason I already knew that those were sort of the pinnacles. I don't even like The Birds. That was the one that I really didn't care for. Yeah. Um, and the weird thing about seeing Psycho the first time I was 11 is that I don't know how this happened, but I forgot the twists. Oh, I knew she died in the shower at the 40 minute mark, mm-hmm. but I forgot the big reveal at the end. And when I say I forgot, I mean, I read the Mad Magazine parody of Psycho 2. I knew mm-hmm. that Norman, Norman Bates was his mother or whatever. Right. I mean, so it's, it's weird that I literally forgot the plot for the duration of the, of the film. Oh, that's um, crazy. Anyway. anyway. Box office. E.T. Hey, what E.T. do this week? $13.729 million. That's an 8.9% increase from weekend two, adding 163 screens for a total of 1,279 screens. That's still less screens than Blade Runner and Star Trek II. Uh, it would earn $58.5 million in the first 17 days, earn eventual, not counting re releases, $359 million domestic total. Actually, I like the re-releases. No, no, 359. Yeah. Oh. The re-release was 399. Um, number two, Blade Runner opened number with uh, $6.15 million in 1,295 screens. A hmm. disappointing figure for a film that would eventually earn approximately 30. Do I know this by heart? Yes, I do. $27.6 million hmm. on, I believe, what, a $30 million budget? I mean, it was not a cheap picture. No. Um, make sure I'm right on that. Yeah, 28, 30 million, give or take. So, yeah, it was, it was a, all due respect, it was a bomb. Man. And unlike Tron Legacy, it was not a 35 year old nostalgia grab you could take your kids to. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Firefox, number three, dropping 37%. Not well, whatever, especially for back then. Uh, gaining 10 whopping theaters for 891 theaters, uh, 5.1 million, 17.7 million over 10 days. Uh, Rocky 3, which is having incredible staying power. For yeah. Me, 
dropping 19% in its fifth weekend for a $5.1 million total, bringing its Q up to 64.192. It would eventually earn $125 million in North America alone. Excuse me, $124. Meanwhile, after some sharp, I would say sharp-ish drops, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan leveled out a little bit. Yeah. Lost 12, uh, 213 theaters for a 12.95 per screen total for a $4.5 million weekend, crossing the $50 million mark on day 24. Mm-hmm. Annie dropped 14% from a crappy four or five and change opening weekend from last weekend. It would make 4.5, 17 million in 10 days, or 10 days of wide release. It had been in 14 theaters for about a month prior to that. Uh, Poltergeist. Also sticking around. Yeah, Poltergeist has some, Yeah, that, that weekend of Star Trek II and Poltergeist holding strong. Yes, $4.1 million, 13% drop in 911 theaters for a $31.3 million 24-day total. And more openers. John Carpenter's The Thing opened up mediocrely. I know that's not a word, but humor me. $3.1 <laughs> million dollars in 840 theaters on hmm. uh, The Thing would basically top out at $19.7 million, which was a huge disappointment on a budget of, and apologies for not looking this up ahead of time, $14 million, Mm. which isn't huge, but for a relatively starless, all due respect to Kurt Russell, horror film, that was not cheap. Yeah, It just goes to show that, frankly, one reason the movie looks so good is because most of the money went to the movie. Right. Um, speaking of budgets that did not go to the movie, seemingly, yeah. Megaforce would open in ninth place with $2.35 million in 1,193 theaters. Ooh. So it's barely playing in uh, less theaters than it's almost playing as many theaters as ET. Jeez. Um, it would top out at $5.7 million. Uh, the, that adventure did not continue. No. And something we're going to talk about later when we have a slow week, mm-hmm. but Bambi was re-released this summer. Yep. Uh, in uh, 1941 release Bambi, and it would add $2.1 million to its lifetime cube in 508 theaters. It would eventually earn $23 million in its re-release, bringing its lifetime total up to eventually, including a re-release in 1988, uh, 267 million worldwide. Adjusted for inflation, that's a shit ton of money. Yeah, you get three movies you can take the kids to in the top ten there. So if ET sold out, you got Annie and also Bambi. Um, yep. I do think it's funny that it's like, hey, we got a new horror movie this week, but ah, let's go see Poltergeist again. <laughs> Granted, Pretty Poltergeist much. is PG and the thing is rated Absolutely. R. Absolutely, but that's and that may have been a factor in the thing's disappointing numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want a scary movie, do you go with the one that you don't need a babysitter for? Yeah. And uh, that's the top 10. Yeah. Oh, so, by so, the way, mm-hmm. Grease 2 took another ah. 55% drop. Oh, geez. Which is nuts for the early 80s. Totaling $1. million in week three, weekend three for an $11 million 17-day total. Jeez. Uh, again, I, I don't... I have not taken the time to see if that's any kind of record for that 
kind of drop in this mm-hmm. time of year, you know, in the 1980s, but it's got to be up there. It did not score tonight, that's for it sure. It did not. Uh, it did not reproduce. That writer cooled, for sure. Uh, Sword of the Sorcerer and Porkies, they, they fell out. Uh, which I was all excited to watch the Sword of the Sorcerer on Amazon. I hit play, and it's the freaking Riff Cracks version. Oh, uh, I got the 4K from Shout Factory to watch, so there's that. Uh, Do they have so a Blu-ray of that? I haven't yeah, there's a Blu-ray in it. No, it's the first time oh, it's ever been on uh, Blu-ray or 4K. So <laughs> I, I don't. I have yet to upgrade to 4K players. Just well, it's a, it's a set, there. so if you buy the 4K I mean, one, you get the Blu-ray. Yeah, so. I mean, if I can watch a movie on my television at all, I can serve that a win. There you go. Uh, but yeah, those finally are not in the top 10. Um Yep. It's a shame. I was enjoying watching them top <laughs> summer movies right and left. Um, st- uh, still more people seeing them than Grease 2. So. <laughs> that is correct. Sorry for the yawn. All right. Well, that, that'll do it for uh, this weekend. That was June 25th uh, through the 27th. Scott, uh, as always, are, thank you for joining me. Are there any new movies opening next weekend? Well, Scott, next weekend we have one movie the Secret of Nim opening. Oh, okay. As I didn't see it here, so I was confused. One movie. So the next, so next week, uh, the, we'll have The Secret of Nim is what we'll talk about. And since we're just one movie, we have moved the conversation about the re-release of Bambi to next week. So bring the kids, bring the kids Spoiler. to the episode next week. Bambi's mother gets shot in the yep. face, and Scott and I are probably going to swear. So. Bring the kids. Yeah, oh, I don't okay, know. Yeah. I don't know. Sure, if you want to. Uh, but Scott, before we go, uh, let people know where they can keep up with you. Forbes. Please Google some variation of Forbes.com, the ticket booth, and Scott Mendelson. All right. I can be found on Twitter, being annoying and obnoxious to all who dare enter at, at scottmendelson.com. All right. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD, written work, why so blue.com. So tune in next week because Scott and I have a rather light load, but. There's a secret to find out, and we'll talk about Bambi as we head into to July of 1982. We're halfway here, Scott. We have halfway completed. I think completed. I spent like 35 years pronouncing that film The Secret of Nymph. Oh. I think I'll keep doing that. It's All funny. right. And then we'll call it Bombi. Um, <laughs> Don Bluffs, The Secret of Nymph. There we go. So, uh, until then, stay film positive. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. 
show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.